Okay, so friends, we are continuing today in our series through the book of Proverbs. And before I begin, let me just say that I completely understand how if you've been with us for the past few months, it completely feels like we've been talking about the same thing over and over and over again, right? And we've all been talking about wisdom, right? That's a theme that's been repeated um, um, throughout the series. Um, first of all, that's, that's not a bad thing because when you preach exegetically, meaning when you preach through whole books in order to get kind of the logic of the author, what he's trying to say, you're gonna sometimes encounter repeated familiar themes. That's, that's all right. But I also hope that you see we actually haven't just been talking about wisdom itself. We've actually been talking about different aspects of wisdom, different angles, different shades and notes of it. Like in week one, we talked about what wisdom is. In week two, we talked about how we can get it. In week three, we talked about the virtues it'll produce in us. Week four, we talked about what it can protect us from. You see, so these are different angles of wisdom. And, and today, Solomon's gonna be talking about another aspect of wisdom that we haven't actually touched much on, okay? And that is what we can actually gain from it. What can we get from wisdom? And it's, it's not easy to explain what this gain is. It's not easy to explain uh, what it is that we can get from wisdom, what entity it, it is. And Solomon does it in two ways. First, in verses 13 to 20, he tries to describe that thing with words as best as he can. And then the other half of the passage, verses 21 to 34, 35, he tries to describe it with symptoms. First words and then symptoms. Uh, imagine a doctor trying to explain a disease to someone who's never had it before or who's never heard about it before. Uh, what are they gonna do? They're gonna explain the symptoms, right? They're gonna say, if you have it, this is what you'd feel. If you have it, this is what your life would look like. Do you think you have it? Right? The best way to explain something sometimes is through its symptoms, and that's what Solomon tries to do in verses 21 to 34. And hopefully, by explaining to us what it is, wisdom's gain is, and by um, sharing this, the positive symptoms that we can have in our life if we attain that thing, the hope is we'd start taking wisdom a lot more seriously, and we'd seek it more than money itself, as Solomon says in our passage today. Okay? So let's get into it. What gain can wisdom offer us? What does it feel like once we've caught it? And why is it so important to have? This is God's word, taken from Proverbs chapter three, verse 13 to 35. It's a long one, so stick with me. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who lay hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped, dew, dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror 
or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you now. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with the man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a violence, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwellings of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Thus says the Lord. Just three things I want to point out from our passage today. The first is what wisdom will gain us. The second is how, how good life is for those who have it. And the third, how can we attain it? All right, what wisdom will gain us, how good life is for those who have it, and how we can get it, how we can attain it. So let's talk, start our first point. What can wisdom actually gain for us? Let's begin in verses 13 to 15. And we see there that Solomon tells us whatever gain this is, whatever entity this is that wisdom can offer us, it's better than silver and gold and jewelry could ever offer us, right? That, that's how he starts the passage. Now, Solomon's not saying that silver and gold and jewelry are, are, are bad things. Look at verse 16. Wisdom there, he describes as holding things like riches and honor in her left hand. She's still holding it, right? It's fine. It's well to have. But notice what it is she's holding in her right hand. It's life. Life. And that's, that's the answer. That is what wisdom, that is the gain, that is the entity of what wisdom can offer us, the thing that is better than silver and gold and jewelry. Now, a quick note on this. In the ancient East, Near East culture, the right hand is always superior than the left. Okay? Similar almost to our culture today. And that's why when you read the Bible and you see Jesus, like in Matthew chapter 25, he would place his sheep on his right hand and the goats where? On his left hand. And you also notice that when Jesus ascended, he ascended to where? The right hand of the Father, not the left. Now, does God have hands? No, he's a spirit, right? He doesn't have body parts. It's just Jesus contextualizing to what the culture understands at the time. He's at a very important place. The right hand is superior than the left. So when Solomon places here, at the right hand of wisdom, life, yamim in the Hebrew, and riches and honor on the left, he's not saying that riches and honor are a bad thing. He's saying that this thing called life, yamim, is greater and more precious than riches and honor. And what's implied here is that it's really, really, really important that you don't switch wisdom's hands. You see? It's really, really important that you don't put riches and honor in wisdom's right hand and life on her left. In other words, to bring it down to our language maybe today, if you live to work, if you live to make money, if you live to build a good reputation for yourself, you're a fool. That means you have placed way too much hope on your career, on your reputation, and you won't experience 
this thing that Solomon calls blessedness, which is the word that Solomon chooses to sandwich the beginning of verse 13 and the end of verse 18 with creating a sort of enclosure, making it the main theme of what he's trying to share. Don't switch the order. Blessedness isn't found in your career, in your money, in your reputation. It's found in this elusive weird thing called life or yamim. But what is this yamim? What is this life? Well, at face value, it may seem like Solomon's just referring to the longevity of life, right? Because read uh, verse 16 again. It says that you'll have a long life, as if the quantity of life is the focus of verse 16. Um, but I don't think yamim, or life here, refers only to longevity and quantity. I think it also refers to quality. Why do I say that? If you move on, look at verse 17. What does Solomon mention? He says that you'll have pleasantness and peace. Now, pleasantness and peace has less to do with quantity of life, but more with quality of life, right? To have this, this sense of pleasantness and, and inner peace. And then he mentions in verse 18 a phrase that a lot of you who have read the Bible would kind of immediately get, and that is the tree of life, right? He says, she's a tree of life to those who will lay hold of her. You remember what that is? Who knows what the tree of life is? It's found in Genesis chapter three, right? Two and three, where you see God, uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, God uh, 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 kicked them out of Eden, God kicked them out of his presence, God kicked them out of the gates of his communion, and banned them from getting the tree of life, because they ate from the tree of good and evil. So the tree of life here doesn't just represent longevity, it also represents close communion with God within the garden gates. It represents a higher quality of life. And then on top of that, stick with me here, just to kind of drive the point further, in verses 19 to 20, Solomon interestingly says that the very thing God uses to create the whole world with, the entity he uses, is what? It's wisdom. God founded the earth and established the heavens with wisdom, verse 19 says. In other words, this, this wisdom thing is, is very, very useful. Imagine, a commentary I use said, what wisdom could do to the quality of your current life if God himself used it to create the world with. It's a very practical thing to have. Yamim refers not only to the quantity and longevity of life, it refers to the quality of life. It refers to its pleasantness. It refers to its peacefulness, to its, its blessedness. It's this thing that we're all looking for, reaching for, searching for, but for some reason, just like the tree of life, we all seem to be permanently banned from it, aren't we? I mean, we experience brief shadows of it, right, and the things that's in wisdom's left hand, you know, when you finally reach that goal you've been looking for, when you finally win that competition, when you finally got that degree, when you finally attained that job, when you finally met that new love, when you held your newborn baby for the first time in your hands, when you get 
that money, when you get that praise, you hold it, you feel it, but for some reason, it just sort of goes away after a while. And it's weird, you know, because you think about it, the money's still in your account, the trophy's still in your house, that child's still in your arms, that new love is still right beside you, that degree is still printed behind your name. But the yamim that first came with it always seems to find a way to evaporate. And we try really hard. We try so hard to get it back. We work and we work and we work to accumulate more of what wisdom holds in our left hand. But no matter how much of this we've attained, it just seems to never correspond with how much of this we have. Are you guys with me? I'm, I'm not the only one, I feel like, that experiences this. So we, what do we do? We keep working. We work at our job, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our friendships. But this low-grade suspicion that maybe the fullness of blessed life is a tree we've been banned from this low-grade suspicion that maybe blessed life is a mirage we can never hold, haunts us every day, no matter how hard we work. Sad, right? But if you look at Solomon's explanation here to the sun, you'll see that his tone wasn't a tone of hopelessness. It was a tone of hopefulness. Find it, he says in verse 13. Get it, lay hold of it, verse 18. Don't lose sight of it, verse 21. Keep it, adorn it around your neck, verse 22. These aren't empty commands. He's just telling someone to kind of, you know, hopelessly pursue. These are, these are hopeful pursuits. Go get it. It's possible, you can. But before he tells us how we can get it, he first describes to us what'll happen when we do. Okay, so let's go to our second point. How good life is for those who attain it, who get it, who have it. If you possess this thing called yamim, whatever wisdom's holding in our life, if you, if you have it, Solomon continues, then in your life, you'll experience at least two positive symptoms. What are they? The first one, is that you'll sleep really, really well. And the second one is that you'll have very genuine friendships. Where do we see that in the passage? Let's go to the first one. Those who have yamim, those who have life, will sleep well at night. Look at verse 24. When you lie down, he says, you won't be afraid, and your sleep will be sweet. That means you won't feel this need to sleep with one eye opened. You know, you won't feel this need to always micromanage every situation in your life, to be involved in every decision, to partake in shaping every narrative, to influence every conversation, to feel protected from every potential sudden threats, to where you kind of toss and turn due to this high level of anxiety that followed you to bed. You know what I'm talking about? If you have yamim, you'll be at rest. You'll have sweet sleep, which literally means sweet dreams. Okay, but, but like, how does that work? How does possessing yamim help you sleep better? Because 
you'll somehow be magically protected from the world's attacks. You'll magically be protected from slander and unfair accusations and gossips. No, you'll still experience all those things like everyone else does. But you'll still be able to sleep well, even when you do. You know why? Because verse 23 says, this yamim would have made you walked securely. Meaning, this life you possess, it'd make you live your life in such a way with a high level of integrity, with a high level of honesty, to where it's abundantly clear to everyone that every decision you make never sacrifices righteousness and justice and equity for selfish gain, ever. You always prioritize what's right, what's good, what's just, what's fair. So when someone tries to attack you or slander you or defame you, it won't reveal any skeletons in your closet. You know why? Because you don't have any. All it'll do is reveal skeletons in their closet. You have walked securely. You haven't stumbled. So slanderers will only reveal the sins in their own heart, not yours. Reveal the skeletons in their closet, not yours. And you know that. You know that. You know how you've lived your life. So whatever comes your way, you can sleep in peace. That's what Solomon means here by sweet sleep. You know that phrase, guilty people run when no one's chasing them? You know that phrase? Solomon's here saying, innocent people sleep even when the whole world does. Nothing to hide. How'd you sleep last night? And let me be clear here. Evil people sometimes sleep peacefully too at night. They do. Do you know this? But it's not because they possess yamim. It's not because they have life and peace, but because they've developed an unbelievable amount of callus around the thick skin of their dead, unfeeling heart, around their consciousness, to where they're just not bothered by the evil that they do. And let me be clear, that is not peace. That is numbness. What Solomon's talking about here isn't anxious sleep, nor is it numb sleep. You see, it's peaceful sleep. It's a kind of sleep you can only purchase with a life of pure integrity. How'd you sleep last night? That's the first thing Yamim will give you. Second, it'll also give you very genuine relationships and friendships. Where do we see that? Look at verse 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you today. Where do we see genuine friendships here? Because it doesn't seem like it's in the text. It's, the text seems like it's more about giving, but the giving part isn't the focus here. Um, just like the previous passage, the point wasn't sleep, but integrity. Here, the point isn't generosity, but trustworthiness. What do I mean? Look at verse 27 and 28 again. It's not mainly about giving people stuff. It's about whether or not you're giving proper compensation, fair compensation to people who deserve it according to your actual ability. You see, look at it again. He says, if it's in your power to do it, verse 27, don't withhold the good to whom it's due. You know, if, if you have the means to do it today, he says in verse 28, don't withhold it an extra day. 
You see that? It's less about giving. It's more about trustworthiness. Do you have what you say what you have? Are you gonna play it fair? Are you a trustworthy person or a scheming one that says, ah, sorry, you know, I can't, I can't pay you now. Uh, come back tomorrow when you actually can. You see? That's the point here. So when people interact with you, they see how you make decisions. They see how you talk to them. You know, they hear how you speak. And can they take you for your word? Or do they have to kind of have their guard up because they can't really trust you? You know, because you strategically slip in maybe 5% of untruth amidst 95% of truth, hoping that the forest of truth will hide that one rotten tree. <laughs> I think everyone here knows what that feels like. We've all done it, right? If not with the words we say, then at least with how we say it. We emphasize certain parts, we gloss through others. We highlight some parts, we downplay others, all in effort to shaping narratives toward our favor. Don't be that kind of person. This theme of trust comes up again in verse 29. Don't plan evil against your neighbor who, do, who dwells what? Trustingly beside you. This is about trust, which is an irreplaceable aspect in relationship and community. All right, so let's, let's kind of bring everything together those who possess whatever it is wisdom holds on her right hand, life, yamim, will live life with such simple honesty, with such innocent integrity, to where they will always, always, always prioritize what's right and fair and honest in every situation down to the minute, unseen detail, even when it costs them silver and gold even when it cost them riches and honor. They would gladly pay it. Why? Because they realize what lies in wisdom's right hand is much more precious than what lies in her left. They're wise people. They realize that money can buy them a bed, but not sleep. It can bring a lot of people around them, but no friends. They're smart, you see. Yamim is much greater gain than precious jewels. Can I just take a second to invite us all to imagine what a community of Yamim-filled people would look like, okay? Let's just picture this in our heads. A community where everyone's at perfect rest, not because they've numbed their conscience, because they've honestly got nothing to hide. No one has any skeletons in their closet. Everyone's lived with such integrity that no one feels the need to watch their backs. A community where no one has to ever double guess whether or not someone's lying. Like, everyone can always rest in the fact that whatever the other person said is the God-honest truth. They don't need to double-check facts. They don't need to doubt certain details. The truth is heard in what is said and how it's said. A community where everyone's secure enough to vent to one another, but yet have enough integrity to know when to stop before their venting turns into sinful gossip. A community where it's a 100% guarantee, beyond a shadow of doubt, that your confidence 
in someone else will never, ever, ever, ever be betrayed by that person. So much so to where you can find in another adult something that you thought you would have never, ever, ever experienced ever again. A childhood friend. Because there is so much confidence between you guys to where having childlike trust for one another isn't considered naivete. It's just a natural result of the friendship. Can you imagine a community like that? Do you want a community like that? Do you want a life like that? It's only one place you can find it. You know where? Covenant City Church. I'm just joking. <laughs> it's the worst plug ever. You won't find it here. Let me tell you, you won't, you won't, you won't find it in any church on earth. You won't find it in any community on earth. You don't even find it in your own families. We can't. The only place the Bible says you can find that is heaven. That's how the Bible describes heaven to be like, a new earth with no sin, filled with redeemed people, redeemed community. But here, today, on this side of eternity, you'll more often than not find the opposite. You'll more often than not find communities filled with people who'd be willing to give up sleep and friends for silver and gold. You'd find communities filled with people busy piling up wisdom's left hand at expense of her right. You'll find fragile communities filled with so much stuff but absolutely no trust. Why? Because we all have callous, dead skin around the consciousness of our hearts. None of us here walk in fullness of integrity. No one here speaks the truth, the fullness of it in every single conversation. Why not? Because we, we're sinful, yes, but also because we know how dangerous the world can be for honest people, don't we? It'll eat us up. And are we wrong? No, we're absolutely right. So what do we do? We play the game, we give up integrity and truth, we collect skeletons in our closet, we sleep with one eye open, and befriend the nightmares, because what else in the world option do we have? Is that not true? Our own sin and the sinfulness of this world has made attaining blessed yamim impossible. So why does the father speak to the son with such hope? Are those empty promises? Why does he tell them to do all this stuff? Who can attain it? Let's go to our last point. It feels hopeless. And the admission of sin, we all just hopefully confessed in the past five minutes, it changes everything, doesn't it? It makes us read about the man of violence and the devious person and the scorner and the fool, all mentioned in verses 31 and 35. And we at this point have no right to just point to people out there. We gotta point to us as well.
We lack integrity. We speak only half-truths for our own benefit so that people don't find the skeletons in our closet. We don't deserve the blessed life of verse 13. We don't deserve the yamim in verse 16. We don't deserve the tree of life in verse 18. You know what we do deserve? The abomination in verse 32, the curse in verse 33, and the scorning in verse 34. Every single person here. But there's a glimmer of hope. Thank goodness for verse 35. This is interesting. The commentary I used uh, by Bruce Watke um, on this mentions how in verse 35, there's a difference between how the wise attain honor and the fool attain disgrace. Look at verse 35 again carefully. The fool, Solomon says, get this grace. They get it as if it's a consequence of their own actions. But the wise, Solomon says, look at it again. They don't get honor, do they? What do they do? They inherit it. Meaning, they don't attain honor strictly by their own efforts, like how fools get disgrace, but they inherit it from someone else. Unlike the fool, Bruce Walkie says, the wise take their permanent inheritance by their right as a child of God, not as something they've earned by ingenuity or manipulation. There's a small difference, but it's huge. It's almost like Solomon saying, there are two groups of people here. The fool whose wages is cursed death and the child of God whose inheritance is blessed life. You see? So, so the question really isn't, stick with me, the question really isn't how can I get blessed life, but how can I inherit it? The question isn't what must I do to earn blessed life, but what must I do to become a child of God so that I would inherit this blessedness of light from my Father? You see what I'm saying? How to become a child of God? You know, do I pray a prayer? Do I uh, ask him out loud? Is there a magical chant hidden in the Bible somewhere? To become a child of God, how do we do it? Well, let's, let's let the Bible answer its own question, okay? Let me read to you what the Apostle John said in John chapter one. And John chapter one, by the way, as I read it, surprisingly has so many themes that correspond with our passage today. And a lot of you know how it starts, right? John chapter one says, that in the beginning was the word of God, the word, the logos, which interestingly, John said, everything was made through. Nothing was made that wasn't through him, kind of similar to wisdom's role in creation as we saw in verses 19 and 20, isn't it? And this logos, which everything was made through, became flesh, John says became one of us. And all who received him, chapter one, verse 12, John says, all who believed in his name, God gave them what? The right to become children of God. Well, who was this word of God? This logos, this one in whom creation was made through, who became flesh, who is it? He was with God, he is God, and he became one of us in Jesus. And what did he come to do? 
He came to take on the curse, Galatians 3 says. The curse that fools like us deserve so that we may become what? Sons of God. Through his blood, we get to call God Abba, Father, Romans 6 says. Through his cross, God forgave sinners like us, foolish, unfeeling people like us, and adopted us as children, Ephesians 1 says. We get to inherit the blessed yamim meant only for the wise. Why? Only because Jesus was regarded as a fool on that cross for our sake. That's the only reason. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. And look, sure, it isn't the full journey, right? You still need to grow in wisdom even after you inherit eternal life, even after you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, even after you're saved, you still gotta work. You still gotta do it. You still gotta practice and train. But this is how it starts. You don't earn your place in the start line. You inherit it. You don't purchase it by good deeds or by being religious. You receive it by grace. Do you understand that? Now, does that mean that I don't need to run the race and grow in integrity and in trustworthiness after I receive Christ? Of course I do. I still need to obey all the action items Solomon gave me here in this passage. I must find wisdom, get it, lay hold of it, hold it fast, keep it, adorn it around my neck. I gotta do all that. Or else, I'll never have this sleep-inducing kind of integrity or this relationship-building kind of trustworthiness that's mentioned here. I will never experience the fullness of that. It's a journey, of course, but it's a journey that you inherit through Christ. It's not a journey you earn by your own religious deeds or your own moral efforts. So if you're here today and you've received Christ as Lord and Savior, don't grow lazy Work, get it, seek it, habitualize yourself to whatever is true, good, and beautiful. Live with integrity, even if it costs you money, because it's much better than silver and gold. Grow in it. But if you're here today, and you haven't received Christ as Lord and Savior, you still think that God's pleasure of you depends on how good you've lived that of course you haven't slept well all night. <laughs> of course you don't have pleasantness and peace. Of course you feel like the tree of life is this mirage you'll never get because it doesn't start with your morality. Give up what your ethics could never achieve and rely fully on what Christ has done on the cross. It begins with an inheritance. Stop. Look upon the embodied wisdom of God on that cross who gave up the riches and honor he had on his left hand and also the long life he had on his right and replaced them both with rusty nails so that you can earn something you never could and that you can start a race you would have never began with your own efforts. Trust in him receive him, and begin this journey towards blessed life. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, for we have not lived in fullness of integrity. 
We have not lived with truthfulness. We have prioritized riches and honor and earthly gain and replaced blessedness in life with it. As we take communion today, help us not just imagine, but somehow taste and see this concept of embodied grace and mercy, who came unto a cross and took on with his own flesh the foolish consequence that we all deserve. And may that realization launch us into a life of integrity and honor, where we, like he, seek life for us and others more than the riches of this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.